Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at the serious matters facing America, existential threats to our country. We talked to our old friend Noreen Burns mm-hmm. in Indiana, and this is not Wisconsin. This is not Minnesota. Right. It's Indiana. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, today, uh, a high of minus 12 and a low of minus 24. Right. <laughs> so our thoughts are with all you folks. This is really freezing. I won't say anything about global warming because mm-hmm. it's so obvious the earth is warming. The global warming people will say this is an effect of global warming. I'm not sure if most even use the term global warming anymore. They use climate change. Mm-hmm. And so this is a whole climate change you. thing. Like it's you cold, but it's usually not this cold. It's because of climate change. And so that covers whenever you're hot or whenever you're cold. Right. Or whenever it's just right. Right. Exactly. Covers the whole sort of Goldilocks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, this is the show that uh, – translates Donald Trump. We take a look at serious matters facing America and confronting the threats to our country. We'll do some politics today. Mm-hmm. Time to do some Democrat politics. We'll do that with John Sununu. And then I will talk about religion and um, the decline of religious institutions and affiliations and what effect that has in America. We'll do that with my old friend Carl Zinsmeister, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, part of the Philanthropy Roundtable. So, uh, to be formal, joining me today, John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire, former White House chief of staff under President George H.W. Bush, will get his thoughts on, you know, everything. Uh, I want to ask him whether he thinks immigration is going to be the top issue for 2020. Carl Zinsmeister, a new guest on the podcast, but an old friend, executive at the Philanthropy Roundtable, former White House chief domestic policy advisor. He will discuss the social effects of religious observance and its decline. And one of the things I want to ask him about is something I'm going to rant about in a minute, which is this attack on religious people and institutions and the assumption of the worst. This uh, reporter for what, the Wall Street Journal, was it, the New York Times? Wall Street Journal, yeah. Who said, I, you know, I want to get, I want to get all this bad info on Christian schools, plus that whole mess with the Covington Catholic high school kids. We'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, religion in disfavor in many quarters in America. And what about the Knights of Columbus, you know, grilling uh, some guy and saying, you know, you remember the Knights of Columbus and that's not legit anymore? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Okay, I have a um, hilarious TV, Mm -hmm. Twitter, and marriage story. Okay, so you've got several funny stories. This, This is this is all one story. Oh, okay. I was on Steve Hilton's show called The Next Revolution. Okay. And we filmed it out in Los Angeles. By the way, I filmed the next edition of Wise Guys out there as well. Okay. Which is a really interesting one. Uh, anyway, um, so I did the Steve Hilton show, and I was on with Katrina Pearson and uh, Kennedy, and of course the host, Steve Hilton. Well, as is my won't, as is my habit, when the show was over, I called my wife, uh, who had watched it. And she said, well, you didn't, you know, those ladies were, were good and they talked a lot. And you, you know, you might have interrupted them once or twice. I said, I, you mean I should have? She said, yeah, you should have because they were going on. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you really don't interrupt women, particularly these days. Right. You know, this is <laughs> policy. Mm-hmm. And I would think my wife would be the last one to suggest you. That you would interrupt. Yeah. Right. Anyway, <laughs> I'd made a mental note of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, well, so I was tired and I was, you know, I was on Eastern time and it was about 10 o'clock LA time. So I said to Mrs. Bennett, I said, well, maybe I didn't talk as much, but I think I was quotable. Right. And she said, uh, quotable. What was quotable that you said? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> 37 years of marriage, you know, what was quotable? I didn't, I didn't hear anything quotable. <laughs> 
That's the way wives talk to husbands. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. She said, "No, I mean you're a smart guy and you're sometimes quotable, but I didn't hear anything quotable." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, she said, what was quotable?" I said, "I, I you know, I can't think of anything right now." <laughs> Review the trip. I have just to look back at the tape. Go to yeah. bed. You know, go to my hotel. Go to bed. Well, about four hours later, I get a text from my son in New York, mm-hmm. whose girlfriend was on Twitter and saw the this tweet from the president. And I had said on the Steve Hilton show, like President Trump or not, uh, he has kept more promises than any president in modern history. Mm-hmm. So the president tweeted, Donald Trump has kept more promises than any president in modern history. Thank you, Bill Bennett. <laughs> well, that's quotable. So I called Mrs. <laughs> Bennett and I said, well, in terms of quotable, mm-hmm. Um, this was quoted on on Twitter, and she said, well, who quoted that? And I said, the President of the United States. She said, oh, oh, my, that's embarrassing to me. <laughs> she said, you got me. You got me. Isn't that funny? That is really funny. Right, right. It's like it's like the layup you wait for all your mm-hmm. life. It's absolutely, like the, you know, absolutely. The 60-yard touchdown pass. You just, just <laughs> thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. I want people to uh, watch Wise Guys. You can watch Wise Guys on Fox Nation. Great panel I had in California. Kimberlyn Brown, who was a candidate for Congress. She was a soap opera star, Young and the Restless, mm-hmm. for many years, and a uh, conservative and very sensible woman. And uh, along with her, Harmeet Dillon, who's a top lawyer. She represented, I didn't know this, she represented the guy at Google who had oh. uh, got fired, mm-hmm. remember, for saying, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know, maybe men or women are different or mm-hmm. whatever it was he said. And she has represented a lot of people. She's very, very sharp. Uh, Steve Hayward, you remember Steve yes. Hayward, our yes. old friend, one uh-huh. of the smartest guys in the world. <laughs> and my really good friend, uh, Dennis Prager. Oh, okay. And Dennis was just a treat. Yeah, just I bet. a treat. And um, we had a good panel discussion. I think folks may want to uh, may want to listen to it. But as a prelude to this um, this show, I just want to say, and I, I will talk, ask Carl about this. What is with this anti-religious thing? Um, it's been said for a long time, Claude, that the thing that really divides Republicans and Democrats. Maybe better liberals and conservatives, maybe more precisely conservatives and the left, is sympathy or hostility toward religion. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, we are seeing a level of hostility toward religion that I haven't seen so explicit. Uh, the Covington Catholic kids, the mm-hmm. high school kids from Covington, Kentucky, who are up here for pro-life at the m- memorial. Um, this old guy, Native American guy, came toward them and started beating a drum and the media went crazy, liberal media went crazy, said the kids were making fun of the guy. They weren't making fun of the guy. There was another group. Yeah, black Hebrew Israelite. So so let's get sequenced right. These kids are at the Lincoln Memorial. They were up in D.C. because of the pro-life rallies. They were then a, a group of about five or six men, black, the black Hebrew Israelites, Israelites uh-huh. started to scream at them and yell all sorts of horrible profanities. Mm-hmm say they were guilty, uh, they were products of incest, these kids, Right. that uh, they're the next school shooters, killers, really uh, abusive stuff. The kids did not fire back. The kids mm-hmm. just took it. And then, b- because the situation was escalating, um, this uh, man, Nathan Phillips, this uh, Native American former Marine, he says, uh, you know, started to march toward them with this drum. Well, one of the kids from Covington was there with a smile on his face. Mm-hmm. And this was widely interpreted in liberal media as disdain. The kids were wearing, God forbid one should ever wear it, MAGA hats. And the press, mainstream liberal press, just unloaded on them. 
saying that they should be hit in the face, they should be uh, worse, uh, killed, uh, shamed, arrested. Uh, This got down to the school. The school was issuing all sorts of condemnation of the kids before all the facts were in. Right. Well, they, they well they were doing all that before it was even mentioned that the uh, black Hebrew Israelites uh, were there first, uh, yelling those um, yes. obscene words to the kids. Exactly. That right. came out after yeah. the kids took a beating in the meeting. And the write-ups about the black Hebrew Israelites, which even Southern Poverty Law Center said is a terrible hate group, mm-hmm. were ignored or as written up in the Post and mm-hmm. the Times. They're provocative. They aim to get a response. And right. So on. And that's it. <laughs> so that's they, it. they beat down the kids, but not beat these adult men adult who were men. saying these things on camera, by the way. On camera. Oh, man. So I, this article you sent me by Andrew Sullivan, if we could put a link up to it. Sure. Um, Andrew is a, a liberal Republican. He's gay. He's uh, in favor of marijuana legalization and gay marriage. All. He and I have had our disagreements over the years. He's a brilliant guy, but he nails it in this article um, about the tribalism of the mm-hmm. left here. Mm-hmm. He talks about some of the tribalism on the right, but the tribalism on the left here is extraordinary. And again, this came out, it seemed to me a little bit with the Knights of Columbus stuff, um, the uh, inquiries over someone being a member of the Knights of Columbus up for confirmation. Uh, this reporter trying to go after the Christian schools. Well, what about the attack on Karen Pence for teaching uh, art at a Christian school? Mm-hmm. Again, that's, that's all a piece of the same thing. It's just horrible. What's going on? It's really not good. Big warning sign. So we'll pay attention to it. We'll pay attention to it here. And you may want to pay attention to it, too. Um, Claude, uh, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but, you know, this immigration debate, there's a lot of pieces to it. There's the border, border security walls. There's the whole question of uh, crime and drugs and and so on terrors. Then there's the whole question that I've, you know, that I've underscored, which is you want to have a border, whether it's saints or sinners, you're, you're keeping out. I mean, you got to have a border, mm-hmm. whether all the people are wonderful coming in or all criminals, you still need a border. Correct. Um, there's a couple other pieces. One, there's this whole thing about employment. And a lot of people think that, uh, our policy has been a kind of conspiracy of the open borders left and the cheap labor, right. You know, the, the employers who want to you right. know, hire cheap labor and, um, you know, the whole question of E-Verify and so on. But there's another whole piece coming out of the world that I lived in or still live in, but have been in now for, what, 50 years. And that's education, the whole question of assimilation. And it used to be assumed and indeed celebrated that when people came into the country, they would assimilate. They right. Pick up American practices, norms, beliefs, values, ideals. Did you notice the Tom Brokaw thing? I was going to mention that. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead and mention. Maybe you, maybe you can find the quote. Uh, you find a quote while, while I'm talking. But on this whole question, uh, just signal me when you got it. On this whole question of assimilation, the more more you are, are willing to assimilate, and the more that you do assimilate, I think the more willing Americans are to have more people come in. If they come in and they, uh, you know, they become Americans in 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 law and letter in letter of the law and in spirit, um, fine. Uh, if not, people feel differently. There's a little anecdote our friend uh, Brian tells about going to a restaurant, had a bar, and they were watching a soccer game, and there were a lot of people in there in Southern California. And he said, I, you know, I don't know if all the Hispanic people in there were legal or illegal. He said, but 
they were cheering for Mexico against the U.S. Uh-huh. rather than the U.S. They're U.S. citizens. One would like to think if they are U.S. citizens, they'd be cheering for the U.S. Yeah, yeah. But they had just a little indicated. Do you have that quote from Brokaw? Yeah, I mean, just simply said, he said that he be- he personally believes that um, Hispanics should, and it's the quote, work harder at assimilation. Yeah. And then what happened to him? Well, then NBC comes out and apologized and said that his comments were inaccurate and inappropriate. I'm not sure where did they get inaccurate from, um, but inaccurate and inappropriate. Uh, they said Mr. Brokaw's comments are more than just out of touch musings. Uh, Mr. Brokaw's comments are part of a legacy of anti-Latino sentiment that is spreading freely in 2019. Now, what are, I don't What are you talking about? Well, you would want anybody to assimilate, whether they're white or black or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. You know, German, Norwegian, Mexican. Assimilation. See, I, I think this is a neglected story. When assimilation is attacked as a bad thing, uh, this is crazy. It's all about what it means to be an American. It doesn't mean necessarily where you were born, mm-hmm. but it does mean what you become and what you believe. Yeah, I mean, he also said, you know, you know, they ought not to be confi- uh, confided uh, in their communities but make sure that all their kids are learning to speak English mm-hmm. and that they feel comfortable in the communities. And he was landed on like a ton of bricks. And he says, and that's going to take outreach on both sides, frankly, speaking Republican. And, Democrat. And, then, and then he tried to apologize for it. He kind of messed that up. He kind of gum, gummed up uh, that. But boy, they, they made him they made him go wear the penitence robe and kneel and say he was sorry. It's unbelievable. For assimilation. <laughs> assimilation is clearly a good thing. Mm-hmm. Just crazy to me. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Joining me now is John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire, former White House chief of staff, under President George H.W. Bush. Who's appeared there that you know? Have you gone to see any of these Democrats? I think um, last night uh, Bloomberg was here. Uh Uh, I think. um, Howard Schultz. uh, He hasn't come yet. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure. You know, Bill, I ignore the Democrats. <laughs> well, that's a shame because that's what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, in, in terms of them showing up here, because they come, they they uh, right now they're going to to quiet events, if you know what I mean. Yeah, mostly sure. coffees, mostly sure. smaller gatherings, and and it doesn't catch the top of the page, and it's buried inside the paper and you know you you have to look hard to find it at this stage of the game let me tell you a couple of reactions i have and see what you think first of all on the positive side in terms of positive reaction i was i've been very struck by how well received kamala harris uh, has been um and, until she made the mistake with uh, saying that she wanted to get rid of everybody's health care insurance that dampened the enthusiasm of a lot of americans but didn't seem to dampen the enthusiasm of a lot of Democrats, I don't think. Well, uh, Bill, this is going to have its ebb and flow through the whole thing. That party has got, if, if not moving left, it's got a very strong magnetic pull to the left. Oh, God, yes. Um, and the interesting thing to me about this pull to the left and and all the candidates that are jumping in at this point uh, is that it's beginning to wake up the middle of America to the issue. I think up until now, uh, the, the swing middle has ignored the movement of the Democratic Party to the socialist end. And all of a sudden, they're they're beginning to pay attention, and $32 trillion caught their attention. Uh-huh. 
and and uh, canceling your uh, getting rid of your health care insurance caught their attention and uh, Ocasio-Cortez's inability to add two numbers together is catching their attention and and uh, Schultz and Bloomberg uh, speaking out trying to pull the Democratic Party back to the middle is catching people's attention so so I think in an odd way uh, all the flash that the recent candidates have gotten has has begun uh, a soft but but uh, a significant ripple of a wake-up call in America. Pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, you're distinguishing, or we're distinguishing the, between the two of us, uh, the wake-up call in America, broadly speaking, and whether there's a wake-up call in the Democrat Party. Uh, well, the, go ahead. The party, the party will not begin. Remember, the party will react on a state by state basis in the primary process. That's what everyone forgets. That that although there are are impacts from a national swell for individual candidates as they go through the process, they have a calendar and an agenda that is state by state. And and each state um, will respond differently to this trend. Yeah, yeah. I was taken uh, the other the other half of this. Uh, as I said, I was taken with how well received Kamala Harris was. By the way, if we're saying the country reacted with some caution to this thirty-two trillion dollar bill, she did not back off from it. I would point out, which suggests- no, she did not. And and you know, she's never backed off from her anti-Catholic statements. Right. And I actually think anti-Catholic, anti-Christian is a label that the Democrats are going to have to work awfully hard to get off their back. Yeah, I was... Uh, from what Diane Feinstein said, from what Kamala Harris said, uh, and, 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 and the insanity of Mario Cuomo in New York State. Um, Tell us about that. Have, Tell us about... Oh, you mean the abortion stuff? Yes. Right up to the up to the moment up to the moment of birth, right dilation. To the moment after the moment of birth, it's insane. And, I missed. And, I missed that. Well, you know, the process starts. There's nothing. It's just and to celebrate it by lighting up uh, all the buildings, the, you know, the buildings that he lit yeah. up in New York. Yeah. And now there's tremendous pressure. Um, I think I saw today that uh, Virginia. Yeah. But Franklin uh, Graham is urging uh, the Bishop of New York to excommunicate uh, right. uh, Cuomo. Uh, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is there will be a lot of conversation around the policies of the Democratic Party and the attacks of key Democrats against uh, Christianity and Catholicism. I mean, the attack of Feinstein uh, on the judge hearing that that she was disturbed that the judge... Dominique she was talking to had strong uh, belief in his Catholic or her Catholic faith. Um, you know, those kinds right. of things are reflections. They're like tips of the iceberg. They're reflections of, of the big sentiment that has gone on in that party for a long time and not been identified. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the question about have you belonged, are you a member of the Knights of Columbus as if it were right. equivalent to the Ku Klux Klan or something? Yeah, yeah. And and that's a burden they're going to have to carry. And let me tell you why this is more important than people may realize. Please. The Democrats are counting on a huge vote from the Hispanic community. The Hispanics are a good 
Catholic community. Yep. They believe in social values of, of Catholicism, and, and they are more entrepreneurial than people give them credit for. The fact is, is that, that the Hispanics in this country who are eligible to vote, citizens, really fit a Republican profile much more than they fit a Democrat profile. Yeah. And the minute you give the hook of anti-Catholicism for them to hang their doubts on, you're going to have a huge impact if the Republican Party is smart enough to understand how to deal with that reality politically. Yeah, I, I just read, I'm close to looking it up right now, but I just read that uh, support for the president among Hispanic men, I believe, is up considerably. Um and uh, this, this, I think it's over fifty percent in some places. Really, really. Well, yeah. That's interesting. And the minute, by the way, the minute the Hispanic vote, but it as a whole goes more than fifty percent, the whole debate on immigration changes. Right. Uh, I was going to get to that, but let's get to that now. In light of twenty twenty, I was watching um, President Trump's uh, campaign guy, this uh, a park scale, and he was saying. This is this will be whatever levels of support and back and forth you, you see in popularity. This is going to be the number one issue. 2020 immigration. Do you agree? It will be the loudest, whether whether it being, becomes the swing issue for for voters really depends on on some other things. For example, if the economy fails to continue to be strong. That may become a big issue. If a national security issue arises around the world, that may become the big issue. Sure, sure. But as it stands now, it, it certainly is the dominant issue. Okay. Claude, go ahead. What, what do you got? He's jotting something. Just go ahead and say it over the air. Yeah, so we have a uh, just-released NPR Marist poll that shows his approval rating among Hispanics uh, uh, went from 31% in December to 50% in January. Wow. Of January 27th. There you are, John. There you are, yep. Johnson, 50%. Wow. See? And, and, and really, uh, look, people don't understand the Catholic vote is the swing vote in America. And it is the swing yeah. vote in virtually every battleground state. It is, it is a, a vote that, that is, can be solicited not on religious grounds. It is a vote that can be solicited on proxy grounds, and Ronald Reagan did that brilliantly. The swing vote in the Midwest were the Eastern European uh, uh, immigrant, you know, the family of the Eastern European immigrants working in the steel mills and the auto industry in, in Illinois and Indiana um, uh, and Michigan. And Ronald Reagan went after that Catholic vote by talking anti-communism and, and his attacks on, on, on the evil empire. Right, right. And it resonated with those Eastern Europeans and, 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 and got, you know, got them moving. Uh, you, you go after that Catholic vote it, it, both regionally. In the Southwest, it's a different issue than it was in the Midwest. And, and, uh, but it is, in a sense, the swing vote. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, back to New Hampshire, back to 2020. The other thing I just wanted to do this for closure on the, on the two points I opened with. I said I was surprised at how well received Kamala Harris was. And even uh, when that $32 trillion, uh, 
a charge came up about the you know the cost of Medicare for all, how she didn't back off from it, and a lot of most Democrats still embraced her. The other thing I noticed was the almost fury of Democrats about Howard Schultz. Yeah. Um, president of Starbucks. Now, I'm not a Starbucks guy. You won't find me in one of those lines. I'm a, I'm a Dunkin' Donuts guy. I am a Dunkin' Donuts guy, too. It's the, it, it, look, Dunkin' Donuts makes coffee. Uh, Starbucks makes uh, yeah. some kind of an addicting concoction. Yeah, cause things I can't pronounce. Right. Ventis and Vantos and other things. I just say yeah. coffee. Anyway, and Dunkin' Donuts. And Dunkin' Donuts like are all a, over. I like a medium hot regular. Yeah, you know? good. And I, Dunkin' Donuts are all over New Hampshire. Right? You can testify to that. Yes. Okay. But what about this reaction to Schultz? He just said, well, you know, that's not realistic. You can't get rid of an entire industry like the insurance industry. You can't get rid of 500,000 employees of insurance industry just with the wave of the hand. And you can't pay for this. The, the Democrats were reacting to the fact that the Democrat uh, was telling the party the emperor has no clothes. They didn't like that being pointed out. Both Bloomberg and Schultz are going to drive the Democrat progressive wing a little bit crazy in this process. They have enough money to be heard yeah. and, and make themselves heard. <clears throat> and, and frankly, they're quantitatively literate. Right. Which That's the nice progressive phrase. wing yeah. of the Democratic Party is quantitatively illiterate. Yeah. Uh, Ocasio Cortez is the poster child for the failure of the American education system. Well, don't get me started, as we say. <laughs> don't don't get me started. Uh, I, I I could actually go there. I was just in L.A., John, and uh, this is really interesting. The teacher strike going on out there, and a bunch of the candidates were passing through L.A. And, of course, they all said they all supported the teacher strike, and they're all opposed to school choice. They're even all opposed to charter schools, with the exception of uh, Cory Booker. And someone asked uh, one of these uh, uh, high-ranking people in the, in the school uh, union movement, you know, how, what's this going to mean for education? And he said, oh, education's not really... Uh, the main thing we're talking about. We're now talking about equity and justice. And I, I thought this was a bit of hyperbole, but as I've researched it, and you know, this is my world, this is where I came from, until you made me become drug czar, then I had to become expert on something else. Um, but I thank you for that. It was a it was a great, great job. We did a good job, too, as you remember, with the president and you and everybody. It was fun, too. Yep. But the the debate now in, in education between left and right is not about whether there's more choice or not, whether or, you know, math is, is this or uh, phonics or look, look, say method. The debate now is between conservatives who believe in math, English, history, science and, and uh, art and music and liberals who saying the purpose of the schools is social justice and equity, not math, literacy, reading, etc. It's amazing. And Bill, they're practicing it. That's the problem. And, yeah. and the problem we have with the millennials is is they have been exposed to that when we weren't looking. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I and know. their hearts and minds have been stolen by ignorance. I know. I remember staring at a bulletin board in um in Los Angeles in a middle school and in big bold letters on the bulletin board was uh, you are the most important person in the world. Uh and what you believe is the most important thing in the world. And I thought, man, if this is ingested, we're going to pay for this someday, you know. <laughs> and we are. We are. And that's Alexandra Octavia Cortez, it seems to me. Yeah. Well, there's so. an interesting article in the paper today that the Democrat Party, some in the Democrat Party are beginning to understand that, that their poster child is bad advertising. 
Yeah. And uh, they're talking about primarying her already. Oh, uh, Cortez, you mean? Yeah. Wow. Well, that, let's stay with that a second, because you said with Bloomberg and Schultz, uh, it's the case of showing the emperor has no clothes. Is it the emperor has no clothes or Johnny, I hardly knew you. That is, the, you guys have gone so far left. Come back to where you were as a as a a reasonable Democrat party. Our friend Dennis Prager says, well, the party's not a liberal party anymore. It's a left party. It's party of the left. Do you agree with that? It's it's a fantasy party. Uh, it, it is a party that has gone so far left that the policies they're laying on the table are fantasies. There is no mm-hmm. there is no real foundation to what they're promising, and so uh, it has gone so far left that that anybody that spends ten minutes analyzing the impact of what they're talking about on them personally, any voter that tries to figure out personally what in the long run the impact is, uh, uh, walks away yeah. from it realizing it's a fantasy party. Let's talk finally here for a couple minutes about Donald Trump and all this, putting together several pieces of this discussion. What's most encouraging for his election prospects? The Hispanic vote going up to 50%, if that can be believed. The fact that uh, Bloomberg and Schultz are in there reminding people how left-wing this party is, if not Kamala Harris and Octavia Cortez, uh, or the the just the general drift of the Democratic Party to the left. Everybody seems to agree. I don't know if you do. Sure. I'd like to know if you do, that the election will be settled kind of like it was last time in states you mentioned, John, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You can't analyze what's going to happen if you don't have a good feeling for what just happened. Okay. And that's the 2018 election. What what people are not talking about is that the difference in the 2018 election was money and a huge difference in money. And there were two or three sources of funds that nobody's talking about that are significant that the Republicans and Trump in particular better figure out how to deal with. Number one was the dark money. The Steyers, the Bloomberg billionaires who were putting money in uh, everywhere. In New Hampshire, uh, Bloomberg put tons of money in here on a gun basis and supported candidates all the way down to the state legislature. And 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 Steyer did the same thing. These so, guys were millions of dollars in a state where millions are huge numbers. Soros too. All of them, all of okay. them, directly and indirectly. Okay. It, okay. They, they, they put it in here because they knew this is where the presidential primary uh, is going to uh, find its. Uh, that their party will try and find its soul in the New Hampshire primary. Secondly, Act Blue. We don't talk about it, but Act Blue is a fundraising website that the Democrats have perfected that has raised hundreds, if not into the billions, hundreds of millions of dollars 
for Democratic candidates, where once you are on it with your credit card, with a single click, you can send money on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, whatever you want. I am told, and I have not confirmed this, so I, I am now repeating what I am told, but that uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke got about $30 million wow. from Act Blue. Wow. Number three, the the nominal normal fundraising process, the Democrats outraised us in everything. We had a, a congressional race here that was tied with about ten days to go and Nancy Pelosi dumped a, almost a million dollars in and, and just made it a blowout. And and she had money to go into every one of those districts that they ended up winning. They poured late money in like it was going out of style. In addition to that, they have played games with the laws. This harvesting of votes in California is the biggest abomination, and somebody's got to do something. And the Republican Party out there better get its act straight and stop its internal squabbling, uh, liberals versus uh, moderates versus conservatives in the Republican Party, and understand they're about to get wiped out as a party even further if they don't stand up and fight to get some of this uh, uh, voter abuse uh, handled either by the courts or, or legislatively. So those you can't talk about the 2020 election without understanding that those are huge drivers in the process. Now, on issues, it, it, it's what we talked about. It, it, immigration is going to be important. Border security is going to be important. International, national security. I think will. I think there's going to be a burp somewhere that's going to bring that back to being important. And whether or not the economy continues to stay strong, that's what the election will be decided on. And President Trump better figure out uh, how he's going to project it. And and he's got to understand. That that he doesn't have to um, uh, agitate his, inspire his base with nasty language. Yeah, uh, I think he's he's got to learn to moderate his language and recognize that the middle doesn't listen to him um, uh, if 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 he's only with language that seems only to appeal to the base. He's got to have language that has a broader appeal. If he does that, I think he's going to surprise people and be a lot better off than people think he is. Very interesting. Very interesting. And those are elements that we don't often hear about. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought them up. Uh, as always, uh, very enriching, very helpful, very smart. And we thank you. And as you watch them come through, keep us posted, would you, on your sure, reviews? Sure, Anytime you want, just let me know. We'll be on. Thank you, Governor Sununu. Thank you, John. Take care, Bill. Okay. Best to you and Elaine. Take thank care. you. Bye-bye. And to Nancy and the family. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction a bit. Let's welcome Carl Zinsmeister to the show. He's an executive at the Philanthropy Roundtable and former White House Chief Domestic Policy Advisor. So, Carl, uh, you have this piece coming out in the Wall Street Journal. I want to get to it in a minute, but tell us who you are. I mean, I know who you are, but what, where are you? What are you doing? And what is this organization you work for? What is it about? Sure. Well, I'm currently at the Philanthropy Roundtable, which is a group of basically very public-spirited donors of all stripes. Some of them are family members. Some of them are uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs who've created a lot of wealth. Some of them are foundations, uh, big, small, and everything in between. And their common interest, Bill, is to they 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 want to to improve our society, to fix public problems using their private resources, which is a ancient American gig that's really one of the best things about our country. 
I think probably a lot of our listeners realize there's no country anywhere in the world that has anything like the patterns of generosity that America does. I mean, I'm talking about we're we're like eight times as generous as the Germans, 12 times as generous as the Japanese, you know, on a fair basis, considering the size of the population and the wealth of the population. You're talking about about money there, numbers, money, money. Yeah, this this, this is giving away cash voluntarily every single year, which we do at the rate of about $410 billion every single year. And then, of course, there's the value of the volunteer your labor, the time that people put into, yeah. um, into trying to change the culture, which good estimates are that that's worth about that much more. So we're talking about an eight or $900 billion a year voluntary effort to, to improve and enrich our culture. And uh, that's, you know, kind of a, a really wonderful, important part yeah. of America. It's one of the most important ways we fix things. Yeah. And, and that was, and that's the treasure part. We talk about blood and treasure. We also help fix yep. things in, in other places, right? I, I, I often say, if you're in some poor, godforsaken, immiserated place, and there are no godforsaken places, there certainly are immiserated places. And, uh, you know, you've got some dictator's uh, a boot uh, on your neck. You see a group of soldiers coming over a hill carrying a flag. You, you want that flag to be the American flag. Yep. We do it as a government, and that's pretty well known. But what's less well known is that we also right. do it as individuals. Individuals, right. That's right. A That's simple right. example of that. You know, we, we give away about $33 billion of official foreign aid to our government. Well, guess what? We give away about $44 billion, much more, every single year through voluntary giving. Yeah. And that's not as visible because it's, you know, $40 checks to Samaritan's Purse or Save the Children. But it adds up. And it's um, it's ultimately it not only substantial in size, but it's really, really efficient, really, really effective because it gets right down to the grassroots without corruption, without intermediaries. Where does that 44 billion go? What to what kinds of institutions? Well, it's super decentralized and that's why it works so well. Um, as I say, the recipients are, you know, groups like Samaritan's Purse or, or World Vision, um, a lot of the hunger groups. And what you, well, you'll find if you talk to the World Aid guys, Bill, is they say, you know, it's easy to get aid to Nairobi, Kenya. Okay, that's not hard. What's really hard is to get it to the little village on the Uganda border. And that's where the philanthropic groups and especially the religious philanthropic groups uh, are unsurpassed. They are, they have people on the ground. They have you know, let's call them saints. They have really dedicated people who will live as doctors in difficult parts of the world, who will go there and at risk of their own lives, um, you know, dispense medicines. And so the, the, the phone job groups are famous for going what's called the last mile to really hit the people that need it. And is, is most of the uh, charitable giving, does most of it or the largest piece go to uh, to or via religious organizations? Yeah, this is something that's not well appreciated. It's, and it depends on how you define religious organizations. Um, for instance, um, you know, the Salvation Army is a, is a religious organization. Yeah, a lot it of is. People don't realize that. Sure is. Um, if, so the, 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 if you define religious organization very strictly as literally a church or church group, it's a, that's a third of all the cash we give away. If you have a more intelligent oh. definition that, that includes the kind of the parachurch groups and the, and the uh, religious-related groups, it's more like 70% of all the money we give away every single year goes through a religious channel. Wow, wow, wow. And what about then, um, getting closer here to your uh, to your op-ed, what about the state and status of religion's observance, religious health uh, in the United States? I've heard it said we're among the most religious of people. Are we? Are we still? 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, if, as, if, if, certainly as among the kind of the modern industrial nations. They're, the only other nations that have the same level of uh, belief in God and participation in regular rites of faith bill would be literally India and places like that, which have very different kind of development levels. But uh, among the developed world, the U.S. is really in a category by itself in terms of the, uh, the breadth of, of religious participation. It has been historically. Now, that's beginning to change, and that's kind of what I put together in these, this new series of articles I've got in Philanthropy Magazine and other places where the two really worrisome things happening, though. One is there has been a, a, a startling decline in religious participation just in the last couple of decades, which we can come back to in a second. And the second thing is there's been a very troubling drop in American generosity, the stuff that we've just been talking about. And what I try to do in this new series of articles is to put those two things together for the first time and say it's not an accident. They're related. Tell us about the two things or the numbers and the, the two categories. Is this what do I have the right religious observance and religious giving? Sure. Well, let's let's start with religious observance. Um, you know, as recently as as you know, one generation ago, uh, the number of people who said they had no religious affiliation in this country was only five percent. Really trivial. Ninety-five percent of people said, "Yeah, I'm, I've, I've got a religious affiliation, whatever it might be." Today, that, yeah, I've got a religious affiliation number is down to 76%. So, a big drop. And the nuns, that I have no religion, is up to a quarter of our entire population. Really? What's especially Wait a minute, from 5 yeah. to 25 in how many years? Yeah, uh, that's in about uh, 25 years. Wow. So, wow. Again, scary. And here's the even scarier part. It's super accelerating amongst the young, which, of course, is going to be America in the future. Mm -hmm. um, among people um, 18 to 29, four out of 10 say they have no religious affiliation today. Wow. Um, a lot of those are active atheists. Some of them are just confused. Uh, a small number of them are, you know, kind of say, I, I have spiritual feelings, but they're not focused. But it's it's a it's a much larger number than anything we've ever seen in do, this country. Do we know Do we know if 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 their parents sent them to church or synagogue or temple? Do, do we know? Well, you know, it's, let's put it this way: they're very different than their own the previous cohort. I mean, uh, the eighteen to twenty nine year olds today, in terms of how many of them go to church every week. For instance, it's about half of the rate that their parents uh, go to church. Yeah. So there's a big something fell off a cliff. What? What? Now, what did it? The culture? Well, the the what, what? That's a, that's a big question. I mean, one of the things I had kind of fun doing it, although it's a bit of a grim subject. Though, um, in the same issue of Philanthropy Magazine, where I make some of these 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 database arguments, I put together actually a, a, a comic book, a little kind of comic article on this very serious and non-comic topic of religious liberty. And my argument is that, you know, the, the public sphere, the public sector has become very hostile to, to faith and to people of faith. And you're sort of expected to not talk about it in public. It's somewhere between not polite to not legal in a lot of people's minds today. I mean, even the, the religion columnist for the New York Times a couple of years ago suggested eliminating the tax exemption for churches that – this is in the middle of the gay marriage debate, and you kind of decide, well, you know, they're a retrograde force. They don't deserve any special protection or sanction. Really out of step with our long tradition in this country of saying uh, faith is a very personal and powerful force that needs to be treated on, on a hands-off basis by the government and respected as an individual uh, occupation by citizens. 
so um, I think part of it is, as I say, this hostility of faith, this feeling that faith is retrograde. In fact, I, I got to tell you, it shocked me when I found. So here's, let me just give you a couple of, uh, and our audience a couple of the things we asked. So we, I, I dug up some polls and basically asked, you know, is religion part of the solution today to our social problems or is it part of the problem? And believe it or not, more people of all Americans, more people now say it's part of the problem than it is part of the solution. And some of this belief is demonstrably false. For instance, there was a Pew done by Pew, uh, excuse me, a poll done by Pew Research, really, really good pollsters. And uh, they asked all Americans, you know, how important are churches and synagogues and other houses of worship to solving the social problems in this country? And the number of people who said um, that they're not at all important went from 21% as recently as 2001 up to 39% in 2016. Wow. Churches are not important to solving social problems. Now, Bill, just whether you hate or love churches, factually, that's just not accurate. Churches are a huge portion of, of running religious schools, of running hospitals. I mean, that's one of the things I demonstrated in my article, that just as a factual proposition, that's a mistaken belief. So now make the connection, Carl, between the decline in religious observance and uh, the decline in support for charities that are worthy. Well, as, as I say, first of all, let's, let's, let's point out that there's multiple points of evidence now that show really surprising declines. And in this case, it's only like the last 12 years. But within the last 12 years, all of a sudden, giving is diving. And people are scratching their heads saying, why? And so I'm connecting it back to this dive in religious uh, belief uh -huh. and, and observance. Uh -huh. And, you know, I don't want to you know, make anyone feel bad, Bill, or call names, but secularism, some of the people I interviewed told me secularism, you know, really makes people very fragmented. There's a lot of talk cheap and easy talk about community today, you know, how important community is. But, you know, there are very few forces that encourage and require us to sacrifice our own personal goals and our own personal tastes to strengthen the community. That's something religion does. Religion doesn't suggest that. There are obligations. There are expectations. Yeah, yeah. It's not all about you. The whole Christian message is that, you know, you're not the center of the universe. You need to show some respect and make some room in life for your fellow creatures of God. Be a brother's keeper. So when that disappears, we probably shouldn't be surprised that you get different behavior. And so that's what I try to connect. So I, I walk through the whole panoply of things. People don't realize that, for instance, practicing Christians are about two or three times as likely to adopt um, problem yeah. children, children yeah. with real issues yeah. and difficulties. They, they, um, Faith-based faith -based groups provide about six out of every ten beds that are offered now to the homeless. Um, you know, a, a lot of alternative schools for poor kids are, are now yeah. uh, run. I mean, everyone talks about charter schools. Well, guess what? There are, are a lot more kids in religious schools, poor kids in religious schools, than there are in charter schools today. A fact on this, I'm just curious, as a product of inner city Catholic schools myself, what's the status yes. of the inner city Catholic school? Well, they're, they've been hurting for some time, you know, in big decline, having a hard time with their financial model. There is a little glimmer of good news there. there that some of the Catholic schools have kind of stolen thunder from the charter schools. They've figured out new ways to govern themselves, to disconnect themselves uh, from the, the diocese and become independent Catholic groups. A few of them have even kind of become basically charter schools that offer then a religious module voluntarily, which a lot of parents, surprise, surprise, take, take them up on. 
So there are new kind of patterns and new structures that are that are at least stabilizing Catholic schools today and giving us okay. some hope that they're going to survive and maybe even begin to grow again after shrinking for a long time. We, uh, we were just having a conversation uh, earlier, and you've assiduously avoided politics, and I'm not going to you know, encourage you to get into it just the degree that, that, that you want, but... I noticed through, I commented on three things and, and they all have to do with the left and Democratic Party moving to left. One, um, this, uh, inquisition of witnesses, uh, asking if they were members of, uh, the Knights of Columbus as if the Knights yeah. of Columbus were, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. Second, this attack on Mrs. Pence, the vice president's yeah. wife for teaching art in a religious school as if there's something wrong with that and third what i thought was a, an amazing event this uh, thing at the lincoln memorial with the covington catholic uh um kids uh, that, that wasn't i guess explicitly political but the reaction to it seemed to break down on political on political lines the hostility toward these kids i know part of it was they were wearing maga hats god forbid but uh, there seemed to be some pretty uh, implicit or explicit anti-Catholicism in there, too. Yeah, I'm totally with you, Bill. It just terrifies a lot of us. It gets us back to that religious liberty question I was just talking about. I mean, let's remember these young people that I've said that are kind of leading us in, in, a, in a new and unproven place, which is very unfriendly to religion. You know, where do they learn this? Where do they learn this on college campuses? Yeah. Where they had to keep their heads down. Uh, and not express a faith uh, point of view or, or even a faith predilection, or, or, or they'd have their heads handed to them. And now you're beginning to see that in, in the broader public square, and it's super worrisome. Again, neither you and I want to sort of make uh, a religious belief a kind of a, 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 a you know requirement of good citizenship. There are lots of ways to be a good citizen in this country. But what astonishes many of us is that it's religious uh, kind of Jews and, and faith and participation is now viewed almost like you say, like it's a black mark. It's a KKK kind of uh, correlate. It's a, it's a negative thing. And just in terms of demonstrated behavior, one of the things I try to make in my arguments is that just isn't the case. I mean, again, just get back to the factoids for a second. It's really fascinating to me to realize that religious people give away money at about three or four times the rate the secular people do. Yeah. And by the way, they don't just give it to their churches. They give it to secular causes at a higher rate than secular people do and in higher dollar numbers than secular people do. So if, even if you don't like religion or don't feel that impulse yourself, there ought to be just kind of a common sense impulse that says if we want a kind and generous and sharing society, we don't want to discourage people like Mrs. Pence from standing up and being counted. And, and somehow the hostility for religion is so fierce this, at this point that we're willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater and just kind of sanction the whole impulse, which is really going to damage our social function if, if we let it stand. Is, is the hostility to religion more on the left than the right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, again, this isn't my opinion. There's all kinds of evidence for that. Is, is, and the, that's one of the reasons that um, that you know, kind of the bleeding heart behaviors that everyone associates with the last one, guess what? They're actually stronger in many, many cases on the right today. As I say, adopting, you know, problem children, uh, you know, helping homeless people, stuff that you think, well, that's what lefties do because they, you know, actually conservative people are more likely to do that today than kind of inversion. And the reason is because conservative people have been less likely to move away from their faith. Although they're moving away too, let's be honest. Yeah, I remember one of the best kept secrets uh, in Washington for years was uh, Jesse Helms who, you know, the media and liberals hated was actually, you know, the 
parent of adopted children with uh, with with learning problems and 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 other things, and this was just not something that uh, got any attention because it would have changed yeah. his 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 image. Um, yep. If if what you're saying though, I just want to explore the political side for one more one more minute, and this trend line is the way you describe it. Is this hostility to religion going to hurt the left, the Democrats, or help it? Well, I mean, it, it, it's going to hurt them in this. I mean, silly, crazy things. I mean, they don't. If, they, if the anti-family kind of behavior that often follows from hostility to religion is going to make it very unlikely that they're going to be producing a lot of children for the next generation. Uh, well, that's know, one thing. Kind of that's a lo- that's a long run thing. Yeah, yeah. That's a long run thing. But, uh, you know, the problem is, as I say, I think what's happened is a lot of people are just kind of self-censoring at this point. It's, it's become hard, especially for young people, to stand up and be counted because there is so much, there are so many risks in actively you know, practicing any kind of orthodox religion today that uh, a lot of them have just kind of gone quiescent. And, you know, I, I, I I'm not even giving up hope. There's a long history of uh, what, what historians call great awakenings in this country. Yeah, sure, where religion sure. Kind of, falls off and then it comes yeah, back. Yeah. And I think we could reverse this bill, but it's going to take a reversal of some of this antipathy in the public and this career risking, you know, literally career eating, uh, you know, sanctions that currently exist for people who, uh, who do, who are frank about their religious beliefs. But Carl, as I know the, a little bit, not as much as you about the history of the Great Awakenings, this is not something you make in the kitchen. This just happens. It's kind of seismic, right? Quite, very much so, yeah. I mean, and and again, I don't think someone I to adopt a utilitarian view of religion that says, "Oh, it's handy for solving things." Yeah, so sure, sure, sure. I mean, religion is either sincere and authentic, or, or it isn't. But it also takes a receptive culture. I mean, that, that's what's happened in many societies where it becomes extremely painful uh, and difficult to, to, protect, to practice your faith, and, and for obvious reasons, it goes into a into a down cycle. Um, so, you know, the American experiment has always been based on the idea that we are going to be wide open to all kinds of faith practices and that this is a really important part of getting individual character straight and of getting social functioning straight. This isn't just a kind of a nice lifestyle look. It's really yeah. a big part of what makes America America. And we, so we need to we need to kind of get back to that tradition of protecting this um culture forming behavior. I, I remember when I was drug czar, um, visiting all around the country, and one of the things I was impressed with was the effectiveness of a lot of religious institutions in getting people, um, you know, right and getting them off. Uh, I remember, I think it was Marvin Olasky who said to me, well, you know, if, if the devil's got you, you know, by the arm, uh, you need to jerk back hard from the other side, and that's not that's that social worker. That's that's God. That's faith. That's, uh, that's yep. religion. Yeah, that's a, a lot of the hardest problems, like addiction. You know, that's really what the literature tells you too. Is that uh, is that you you, need, you really need to get inside people, and that and faith is the best way to do that. And you know, let me get too gloomy here and completely depress our listeners. Bill, I want to just inject a couple of positive things. Let's please, point please. Out that at, at the same time that faith as a whole is under real pressure and declining in many places, there are also booming, booming congregations where people are rediscovering the, the, the joy and the power of, of a sincere faith. I, mean, I have a kind of a parlor game. I bet you do this. When I visit a new city, I really try to get into some of the churches. And I don't mean just the Gothic cathedrals that are downtown. I mean some of the really burbling uh, congregations. And... One of the amazing things you find today is there, there's, there's this weird spatial mismatch. A lot of the kind of the mainline congregations in those big, great churches downtown 
are fading. And you walk in, it's all little old ladies in small numbers. Whereas you go to these kind of booming, you know, whether they're Lubavitch Jews or they're evangelical Christians or they're Orthodox Catholics, you know, very fast-growing congregations, uh, but they're all meeting in like theaters and public high schools, and they just don't have the infrastructure. So one of the things I try to argue in, in, in the series of stories I'm doing in Philanthropy Magazine and elsewhere is that there are things we can do about this. There are, people, there are things that people of means can do to help these growing parts of religion, the ones that are really showing an ability to address a hunger in, among, in the public. They're, we can help them get churches. We can help train their leaders. We can do things that will make it possible for them to grow. Interesting. Interesting. Very good, Carl. Uh, great uh, stuff. Great introduction to you for our audience. And uh, we want to continue the conversation. We thank you, Carl. Right, right. Always, always a pleasure. So that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Right. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Can you not like me on Facebook? Uh, no, well, they can unlike you once they like you first. All right, so the choices are like and unlike. Well, the choice is like, but then once you like, you can either continue to like or unlike. But we don't want anyone but to. you can't dislike. Right, no. Please don't. Well, I mean, whatever. It's free country. Uh, you can uh, feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. If you do email the show, where, where do they email? Where do they email? Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up to you later. 